Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's episode continues a series of programming called Talk to Your Neighbor. The goal is to discuss COVID-19 vaccinations and vaccine hesitancy in our community. The speakers for today come from the Betty Davis African American Summit on COVID-19 from October of 2021. It was presented via remote and in-person speakers. We'll begin with addressing the economic impacts of COVID-19. Anchorage Economic Development Corporation President and CEO Bill Pop speaks next. Well, good afternoon. It is a great pleasure to once again address this important summit, and I deeply appreciate the opportunity to share the views of the Anchorage Economic Development Corporation regarding the economy and the impacts that COVID-19 has had, as well as some of our views on where we go from here. Now, at as time is limited, let's dive in. Prior to 2020, Anchorage was still suffering from the longest recession it has seen in decades. From 2016 to 2019, Anchorage had already lost 6,000 jobs, even before COVID came to town. But when COVID did arrive, we lost an additional 12,400 jobs in 2020. So we began this year down 18,000 jobs, a tremendous hit to our overall economy and a major setback for the Anchorage um, community as a whole. The good news is that we are recovering jobs with September showing that our city is up over 4,000 jobs in September of this year compared to September of 2020. AEDC does project that we will recover over 4,000 jobs in 2021 with another 6,000 jobs added by 2024. But even with 10,000 jobs recovered by the end of 2024, we will still have 8,000 jobs to be recovered before we can actually say that we are into true growth. I believe it will likely be 2027 or later before we have fully recovered all the jobs that we have lost over the last five years. It will be a challenge to make this happen because of the many obstacles we face. COVID laid bare any number of underlying weaknesses in our economy. Since 2013, we have lost 4% of our population, 13,000 citizens who mostly moved to the lower 48, and were mostly of adult working age. Yet we have hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs going unfilled that businesses are posting every day in all sectors of the economy. Workers are rethinking the very idea of what work means to them, and are quitting their current jobs to seek a new path, including remote work opportunities, retraining for new lines of work, or retiring early and dropping out of the workforce completely. In September, what is now known as the Great Resignation, 4.3 million workers quit their jobs across the United States, an all-time monthly record for total quits. And we could see even higher numbers of resignations in the coming months. And then there are the problems with the lack of affordable and available daycare that is keeping hundreds and possibly thousands of Alaska workers out of the labor market, mostly women. Throw in the limited options for public transportation and the fear of catching COVID, and we now find ourselves in a situation of a tight labor market for employers. Not enough workers to fill the thousands of jobs available in every sector of the economy. Our city faces an even growing, an ever-growing set of challenges triggered in no small part by the COVID pandemic. 
But to overcome these and many other challenges our city faces, there is one overarching issue we must address to move our community forward. Our city is not what it used to be. I think we can all agree that our city is a much rougher town to live in today than it was 20 years ago. Our downtown is just one example of the rough shape we find many of our neighborhoods, community parks, and centers of business. The homeless problem continues to grow and appears to have no long-term solutions in sight yet. The divisiveness and intolerance that has grown in our city in the last few years is another sign of decay I think we all have to recognize. We are a city that is in decline because we do not have a common vision for the future of our city. And it will, and it will, uh, and it will take that vision to make it happen. This decline in our, in, of our community has been brought into sharp focus with the ongoing debate surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic and how to respond to our public spaces, our workplaces, and to individuals. The debate has become the catalyst that has brought us where we are today as a city. Our public discourse has devolved into verbal rock throwing that sometimes seems to be one step away from actual violence, fueled by public displays of bigotry, racism, hate, and threats of violence against public officials, doctors, nurses, media, and in a number of cases has been egged on by some of our public officials. This is not the Anchorage we know and loved. We are at odds with each other and unable to agree on the path forward. We, all, we have all talked a good game about what we think our city should be, but we have been mostly unable to agree on needed reinvestment in our city infrastructure, neighborhoods, schools, and centers of commerce and community spaces. We all want these investments, but have become lost in the mindset that somewhere, somehow, there is free money to pay for all the nice things that we want and need. Folks, the magic money tree has died. The easy button no longer works. Our city has a bright future if we want to do the hard work and make the investments that will make that future happen. We have tremendous opportunities in our airport, our tourism industry, and in our oil and gas and mining sectors. We have huge opportunities thanks to the Alaska Native Corporations. We, have, we are a logistics town. We are a tourism town. We are an oil and gas and mining town. We are a military town. We are a center of federal, state, and local government town. We are a center for education in Alaska. We are the center for healthcare in our state. We are the incubator of entrepreneurship and new business startups in Alaska. We are ground zero for practically every new future economic opportunity in our state in the next decade and beyond as the center of commerce, transportation, and professional services in Alaska. We are Alaska's economic future. In the coming year, AEDC is initiating major projects to bring forward a public discussion about our city and its future. It will start with a broader discussion and research to identify our shortcomings, our liabilities, our challenges. Our efforts will then turn to identifying opportunities for growth and expansion of existing industry sectors and identifying opportunities for growth in new lines of business and industry. And finally, we will seek to gather a larger conversation on what our city needs to become in the coming years that will attract and retain critically needed, work, uh, needed skilled and semi-skilled workers encourage and attract new investments in our infrastructure, neighborhoods, education system, healthcare, parks, trails, and community centers like downtown. Our goal is to bring together the business community and the public in a common vision 
for the future of Anchorage that will drive the decisions and actions of our public officials to accomplish in partnership a new vision for Anchorage, a vision that will make Anchorage a great city to live, work, and play. COVID is not the end of us. COVID is the beginning of us in this new time and age that we live in. We all need to gather together and join in in finding that path forward and agreeing to what needs to be done to get us to the destination that we all agree we want to achieve. I want to thank you for this opportunity to share with you AEDC's knowledge of our economy and our vision for the city's future, and I look forward to the opportunities of further discussion later in the program. Thank you very much. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. We're hearing speakers from the Betty Davis African American Summit on COVID-19 from October 2021. Up next is author and former Alaska Black Caucus President Dr. Louis Overstreet with his view on the nation's economy and his proposed solutions. I have titled my remarks, Perilous Economic Times, a Reflection of the Divided Nation. Some of my remarks were excerpted from my recently published seventh book, How to Survive in America's 21st Century, Essays on Personal Responsibility, Accountability, and Initiative. In summary, it is my belief that the economy is merely a reflection of our previously, pre, excuse me, presently hopelessly divided society, and our nation is moving perilously closer to irreversible decline. I better repeat that, so I know it's right after lunch, and some of you may have dozed off already. Our economy is merely a reflection of our presently hopelessly divided former great nation that is moving perilously closer to irreversible decline. I support my belief for two primary reasons. One, we no longer believe in a consistent set of values, and two, in the word politics. Point one, to illustrate point one, I would know five sayings that once defined America at our best, that which are only marginally true today. An international saying that comes readily to mind is, women and children first and every man for himself. This may have been true during the filling of the light bulbs of the Titanic, but it is not today. Women's right to safe abortions are under wholesale assault. Immigrant children on our southern border are caged and uncared for. However, every man for himself remains in vogue, especially as it relates to political power and greed. The principle of one person, one vote came into being by a narrow 5-4 ruling by the Warren Court in 1964. This serves as the basis for the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We all know after decades of progress, this act was gutted in 2013 and dealt a death blow in 2021, excuse me, by the Supreme Court. Three, a rising tide lifts all boats. This is not true for poor folks in leaky rowboats along America's coastlines, but the tide of wealth certainly floats the seaworthy yachts of the rich. A chicken and every pot can be found in the homes of families with six-figure incomes, but in the homes of families living below the poverty line, the pots at best contain boiling water to make potato soup. And finally, five, the good, bad, and the ugly. The good was that Julian Hill believed that if you worked hard, you could get ahead in America. The bad was that for persons of color and women, you had to do it with the ambos of discrimination, gender bias wearing you down. The ugly truth today is the facts of oppression and suppression, a stifling 
that at any time since, more striking, excuse me, at any time since the 1950s. The only difference is back then such acts were overt. Today they are so-called work, it makes the CIA green with envy. Point two, politics as practiced in the days of America serves as the basis for me saying our nation has become ungovernable. Before moving on and using President Biden's Build Back Better bill as a feeble example of politicians that attempt to address the health crisis in America, let me list in a bridge form things that make America ungovernable that are contributing to its decline. For the past decade, I have predicted in editorial columns in the print media on Facebook that our nation was losing its ability to govern and solve problems. Given this fact, our position as a world leader since the end of World War II is now in jeopardy. Now, no one with a room temperature IQ above can seriously lead, given our current political situation, our federal government, federal government excuse me, can provide workable solutions to any of the current problems we face. Here's my list of 10 that come most readily to mind. One, deficit and debt crises, health crises, immigration crisis, institutional, racial, gender, religious, xenophobia, homophobia, bias. The dumbing down of America, where the times our graduate schools are filled with foreign students, Americans are locking up a greater percentage of our black and brown population than any time in its history. Unchecked random societal violence, seven, an unjust justice system, eight, voter suppression, nine, the wealth gap, and 10, foreign policy blunders. Why is this, you ask? It is because Republicans are experts at running out the clock on social and economic changes, and Democrats constantly engage in legislative overreach. It just so happens the top two of my top 10 parade a deficit and debt crisis and health crisis. During Donald's turn, <laughs> the Donald's, I should, or President Trump, for some of you, not me, one tenure. In December 9, uh, 2017, he passed a, a tax cut, passed a tax cut, excuse me, that resulted in his four years in office increasing our national debt by $7.6 trillion. At the beginning of his term, our deficit was $19.9 trillion. So you divide the amount of debt he contributed versus our entire debt over the history of this great nation. And he increased our deficit, I mean, our debt by nearly a third. Presently, our national debt is north of $28.9 trillion. Or our each of us who as taxpayers, portion of that debt is $229,000. There goes a nice retirement condo somewhere Somewhere on a golf course in the lower 40, you were thinking about purchasing. Sorry. By comparison, the total amounts of goods and services our nation produced in 2020 was just slight of $22 trillion. In other words, we owe more than 132% of what our nation produced all last year. If you're not scared yet, let me try with the horror show of our healthcare crisis. We spend over 11,000 per capita a year on healthcare in America, or a total of 26 point, I mean, sorry, $3.6 trillion. The government contributes 1.9 trillion of this cost. Healthcare only represents 
17% of our gross domestic product or $22 trillion, excuse me, $22 trillion a year. Whereas by comparison, Denmark has the best healthcare in the country, or I should say in the world, and they spend about $5,300 a year per uh, capita. Whereas in America, we rank 18th, 18th best in the world, and we spend more than twice they do at $10,637 a year. Just imagine if we had Denmark's healthcare system, we can save nearly $934 million against our projected $1.1 trillion budget a year. With these facts staring us in the face, Biden's Build Back Better, which proposes to increase federal spending for healthcare to the tune of $600 billion a year, uh, that is going to be impossible to accomplish. Healthcare costs are already increased at a faster rate than our growth. Further entitlements presently represent 70% of all federal entitlement spending. Concluding, the only thing that can be done to cure what ails us as a nation requires us to swallow some bill of pills. Excuse me. Those bill of pills uh, will be politically tough to swallow, but I suggest among those pills should be pass a, a balanced budget amendment to the U.S. Constitution, pass a 3% surcharge tax that would be designated to pay off our national debt, three, stop voter uh, suppression laws, four, pass term limits for con uh, Congress, and five, reduce lifetime Supreme Court appointments to a single 16-year term. If America does not initiate these and other needed accessible changes, our role as a world leader will no longer exist by mid-century. Thank you, everyone. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's episode features speakers from the Betty Davis African American Summit on COVID-19 from October 2021. Next, we'll move on to the justice segment of the summit. We'll hear from Alaska Black Caucus Justice co-chairs, attorneys Rich Kurtner and Rex Butler, the Honorable Pamela Scott Washington of Anchorage District Court, and Kevin McGee of the NAACP. Uh, my name is Rich Kurtner. I've been a public defender in Alaska for the past 30 years and beyond that, back in Ohio. Uh, but I retired uh, in January 2020, just two months before the pandemic hit. But I don't know, and I like to hear from these folks about how it's affected the community. COVID has affected the community um, in the last 18 months or two years or so. So Rex, I would like to start with you. Okay. And ask you how your practice has, how has COVID affected how you practice law in your office? Well, uh, first of all, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Th this, is what, this is what I see on a day-to-day -day basis. Obviously, there are a number, a large number of people in the jails who are unable to bail out for whatever reason. The jails have become a hotbed of COVID-19 because you can't really social distance in there. You know, you're, you're stuck in rooms with other people. There's nowhere to go. So what does that mean? That means this. A lot of people are not being transported to hearing. In federal court, they get permission from the defendant to go forward with the hearing without them appearing. They give them the option of appearing and just that it will be down the road at some point. But the problem is, is once they appear, 
But once they come out of the jail, go to the courthouse. When they return to the courthouse, it's 14 days of isolation um, because they don't know if you've been exposed as though you haven't been exposed already inside. Really, it's the people in the courthouse who ought to be more concerned. But be that as it may, you're 14 days in quarantine. So many of the inmates, I say 99% of them, prefer not to come to court for that reason. Now, the biggest impact is the fact that we're not doing jury trials right now. Now, what does that mean? That means that there are people sitting in jail in pretrial status uh, with the presumption of innocence who have been waiting well over a year to go to trial, which is unusual in Alaska. And, and what I mean by that is this, normally these people would get to trial a lot sooner once they declare ready to go. Now, sometimes cases take a, a period of time to process and get ready for trial especially the, the higher-up crimes. But we've got people sitting in jail uh, for minor felony offenses who are waiting to go to trial and have been waiting for over a year um, because, uh, like in state court, for example, they don't ask prospective juries if you've been vaccinated uh, and what have you. Um, it's just a situation where you got an airborne disease, it's serious, um, in a group of people, even in a group of people that we have here, it's very likely somebody's positive, but maybe asymptomatic. And so the fact of the matter is to keep down the potential of completely closing down the courthouse, because at least you can do telephonic Zoom hearings and things like that, you can still move some cases along. Some cases, if uh, defendants want to change their plea where they've cut a deal that they believe is reasonable, then um, those those cases can be moved along. But for the most part, we have a lot of people sitting in jail who can't afford to pay a, to, a bail or can't meet the, the conditions and they're just waiting. So that's a heavy duty impact. There's a lot of frustration in the jail among some of these uh, people who've been waiting and want to do, give me my trial so I can either prove my innocence or move my case on. And so that's a very heavy impact, Rich. Yeah, uh, thank you, Rex. We'll I'll have more questions for you. But, you know, I've heard from a lot of attorneys how difficult it is to practice during this pandemic. Judge Washington, I can't imagine what it's like for the judges. What ha how has this impacted, impacted your courtroom? Well, I, I think that people don't realize is that the um, judicial system has to keep open and operating no matter what. And so when you see those um, notices from the governor's office that says state age, you know, state buildings are closed and state people can stay home, it does not include the judiciary. And so the court has been open the entire time of the pandemic, but we immediately went up to Zoom and teleconference hearings. Uh, the Department of Correction is not transporting defendants just because of that reason. So I'm, I, I don't think I've seen a defendant in my courtroom in almost two years. Um, so we're not having jury trials because you know they have a right to have um, a certain kind of jury pool. And so one person asked me, well, why can't we have jury trials? People can wear masks. And it's not the same as, um, as citizens making a decision to go into a restaurant um, and taking the risk of what pandemic might um, afford you 
when you are coming to the courthouse, being required to come to the courthouse as a juror, you really don't have a choice. And so I think that our presiding judge and uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court decided that it's hard to make people come to court in the pandemic, and we don't want um, defendants to not be afforded the entire um, pool of jurors, um, not just people who are vaccinated. We're not asking those questions, and so we don't think it's safe. Um, right now, jury trials have been suspended through the end of June. I think we've been doing one month at a time, one month at a time, and so people were thinking that it was going to um, be suspended up through the end of October, but it's got a, a new Chief Justice order that they have been suspended now through the end of June. And so we're watching the numbers. We're meeting with the medical um, office for the state to see when it's the best time to proceed. But I do want to comment that um, um, Mr. Butler was indicating defendants that are in custody and are unable to post bail. Um, judges have implemented an OR bench warrant. So we put out bench warrants where if people are arrested, they just get their next court date and they're released. So we've been doing all that we can to make sure people are not don't have to go into Department of Corrections on small offenses or minor felony offenses. And so we've been in instrumented uh, OR release for bench warrants, unsecured bails for bench warrants. You just sign an IOU and say that I'll come to court. So I think we've been trying to do as much as we can. But we are doing everything by Zoom, um, by teleconference. And also, the courthouse is open to the public. Hearings are open to the public. So one of the things we've done is that some of the judges have set up YouTube accounts. And so you can actually go into the YouTube account and watch the proceeding. You know, So we're still trying to make the court available to the public, um, hearings available to the public as much as possible, trying to reduce the traffic of people into the courthouse. And so um, we, our campus is still locked down. Um, we're not doing any hearings. Um, that are not uh, necessarily required. We're not even doing regular court um, um, things where the public comes in for different things. And so um, I think we're just watching what the decision is made by the state and what the numbers are regarded, regarding to um, hospitalization and COVID, and we're just making decisions as we go. Uh, Mr. McGee, uh, you probably have heard from the community um, somewhat on these issues, not from a lawyer's or a judge's perspective. But what have you heard? Well, first and foremost, good afternoon to everyone. And all of us are thankful to wake up and see another day. Uh, the biggest setback we've had within the NAACP is actually meeting with potential clients because they can't come in to, to meet with us at our office and uh, everyone doesn't have a, a ability to meet with us via Zoom. So that's been one of our setbacks, our biggest setback, meeting with potential clients and those that need our assistance. So at this time, I'd like to read some prepared, uh, a prepared statement I wrote up. Thanks for the opportunity to join you. It is a tremendous honor to be here. On behalf of the Anchorage NAACP, I want to thank the school board for recognizing Senator Davis' trailblazing work in Alaska. For decades, from her time on the school board to the state house to the state senate, Betty Davis was the foremost champion of public education. So it is entirely appropriate to name East High after her. I want to address the nexus 
between our public education system and our criminal justice system, system, giving so much well-deserved attention on inequities in our criminal justice system. In a complex society, we can be prone to look at issues in silos. If we've got a problem with crime, well, maybe we just need more law enforcement. If we've got a problem with education, maybe parents just need more options. If we have a problem with unemployment, maybe we need to make unemployment even more painful and humiliating than it already is. Of course, the reality is that you can't separate any of these issues from another. Our founding documents, which are a clarion call for recognition of the inherent dignity and value, implicitly recognize each person arrives on this earth with so much hope and potential. All we have to do is provide fertile ground for that promise to grow. Betty Davis came to Alaska to attend college and worked at API. Decades after her tenure as a social worker, we know so much more about the impact of trauma on individuals. In the sense, the choices we face are very simple. If we don't provide a safe and nurturing environment for kids to learn and grow, we will spend a massive amount of money on policing and incarceration. Kids arrive on this earth with so much promise, but we have, to, we have the most inadequate system for care for young kids of any advanced nation on earth. We can have as many or as few police officers as we want, but Anchorage won't have safe streets until we take care of and educate kids from the time they're very young. We can spend as much as we want on prisons, but there won't be enough sales if we aren't sustaining, sustaining a high-quality high public education system like right here at Betty Davis East High School. At this point, it is painfully clear who is more likely to be the victims of violence in our criminal justice system. It is people of color, and we see disproportionate rates of incarceration in Alaska, just like you see in states farther south. But it is really all of us, regardless of skin color or racial heritage, who pay the price when we give up on the potential of kids, whatever their skin color. Each child is born ready to do good, to love his or her neighbor, to learn and contribute to society, to graduate from a school just like this. That's what Betty Davis fought for all of her life. And let's keep fighting for that vision. Thank you. Thank you. Well said. Rex, uh, you and I go back to last century <laughs> in practicing law. And, um, you know, it's, I know for you and me, it's very important to have that personal interaction with clients. Critical. How do you deal with that now in the world of Zoom? Well, you know, we've been reduced to phone calls, essentially, because they don't they don't provide Zoom for attorney-client conversations. You can't look at the material with your client. You can't play, you know, videos uh, of interviews with your client, listen, get client feedback. So essentially, we are substantially ham hampered in our ability to prepare not only the client, but to prepare the case. Because whenever you go up against the government for trial, 
obviously you have uh, a very worthy adversary. And it's not fair to these folks who are in custody to be forced into going into trials. I mean, just uh, this week, you know, we did what were called pretrial conferences by phone, clients on the phone, lawyer on the phone, judges somewhere. But sometimes they, they do their hearings from home, and so do lawyers. But the main, but the point is, is that judges, they're looking at their calendars, they're knee deep in trials, and we had a judge tell, tell uh, several of us in several of our cases, this, got, this case is going to trial in January regardless. Now, that means regardless of whether you've got the necessary prep time face-to-face -face with your client, which is what we're used to doing. You know, you can't prepare a case over the phone, but that's, what we're, that's where we're at right now. And we've got, you know, judges demanding that present company exempt, exempted from that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we've got, we've got judges telling us this case is going regardless, you see, and they mean it. So what do we have to do? We're going to have to get in there and create some friction. Let the judge know the case is not ready. Now I'll start selecting jury if that's what you want me to do, but the case is not ready. So it, it's a substantial problem for a person who's in the jail, what we're going through right now with COVID-19. It's very difficult, and, and as has been stated by Judge Washington, the courts are doing a lot to try and level the field against COVID-19. But with COVID-19 raging the way it is, and I'm gonna be completely honest with you as a practitioner, I don't wanna go into the jail right now. I'm gonna be completely honest with you, okay? This is an airborne disease. Why do I wanna go into the jail where I know it's rampant? I mean, it, you know, I'm sure there's some folks here who would brave that storm. You're not looking at one of them here, okay? And I know a number of attorneys who feel the same way. You can't control it in the jail. You know it's rampant. You're bringing people in all the time because even though judges are giving the type of warrants that was, that was articulated by Judge Washington, even though um, judges are giving these kinds of warrants for people who are getting, getting arrested without the benefit of that type of warrant coming off the street, you don't know whether they've been vaccinated, whether they've got COVID-19, they go into the jail and the infection rages on. It's really not fair. You know, um, but I will say that that Rich and the Alaska Black Caucus was instrumental in opening jails. In other words, they put the kind of pressure on the jail, Department of Corrections, that forced them to open up the phone bank. Because prior to that, we had very little ability to talk to, to our clients. So the pressure that was put on by the Alaska Black Caucus and Rich enabled us to be able to get our clients on the phone, which means, I mean, it means the world to us right now because it's really the only way that we're gonna be communicating. And uh, so 
you know, that is what this organization has done to help, but it really, we, we have to be able to get in and feel safe and be safe. And so how does that happen? I don't know. If one of you all come up with an idea, let somebody know. Well, we could all get vaccinated and wear masks and get everybody else to do that. That would help. So, In the meantime, you know, Judge Washington, we know that the bench and the bar, judges and lawyers, our mission is the administration of justice, and that's what we do. And I worry, as a lawyer, how, how compromised that might be under the pandemic situation. What are your thoughts of that? How do you personally deal with the difficulties you face now? Well, I, I first want to address um, Mr. Butler's comment about judges doing hearings from home. When the pandemic started, um, just to keep the morale up with our staff members, because in order for the court to function, people have to be physically in the building. And while judges can appear by telephone, we thought it would be um, in the best interest of our organization that judges come to work. And so when the downtown was completely empty because the pandemic had basically sidelined everyone. The courthouse parking lot was full because judges came to work. The only time that we would do hearings from home if we had had an, expo um, an exposure to the virus and we had to be in quarantine. But we have actually come to work every day, all judges, unless they've had COVID um, um, contact. And we've done that because we have so many frontline staff members and they can't do their jobs from home. And so um, if, if I work from home, I have to have a lot of things going on. Someone still has to be in my courtroom, I'm turning on the recording system. Someone still has to be in my office, making sure attorneys are on the line. And so it's even if I'm home, there's so much work that has to be done. It's just easier if I was at work. And so judges have been coming to work, our chief, um, administrative office has been working with other agencies, the public defender agencies, as well as the, the, the state the, um, prosecutor's office to see what we can do. We've added uh, telephonic hearings so we can get rid of some of the backlog, um, added more um, changes of plea dates, um, trying to be available if cases can be resolved um, that don't need to do a jury trial. We've done that. And of course, civil matters are continuing. Uh, we are able to do civil jury trials by Zoom. Uh, we've um, been able to, do, well, bench trials. We haven't had any civil um, jury trials. Uh, we've been able to do small claims actions. Um, we're still doing children cases. And so we're still doing a lot of things. Divorces are still happening. It's just that everything is done um, online, um, telephonically. And so I think the court is, is aware, because one of the main things that happens that Mr. Butler is talking about is the right to a speedy trial. And we know in history, when there's a public health um, pandemic, um, we have to make changes and do things that will be for the betterment of the community. And so the court system is making decisions um, based on the community and the science and the data that we're receiving. Um, we can't do something separate and apart from what the community is doing. And so, um, so the decisions we're making, we recognize that there are people that are in custody that are waiting for jury trials. Uh, we're having bail hearings constantly. We are certainly um, opened up for more um, access to the court so people can get bail hearings. Uh, families can petition the court for releases of their loved ones for medical reasons. 
Um, and so we have taken that into consideration. And we don't put people in custody if we can help it. And so that's the thing that we've done. I, I know when I just was doing some jail court hearings just the other day, I always stress, sir, I'm going to let you out of custody. But if you violate these rules, you're going to get back in. And so that's the thing is that we're trying to stress that we want people to stay out because we don't want people to go in and out. But I think that the court is doing the best that we can. Uh, we have been instrumental in talking with DOC to make sure lines are available so attorneys can speak with their clients. Um, if there's a, a time when I'm having a hearing, the lawyer's on the line, the defendant is on the line, he hasn't had a chance to speak with his attorney, I will usually go off the bench, close the record down, and give the a lawyer access to the defendant, give them a few minutes to speak about the hearing as much as I can. And so the court is aware that it's a very difficult time for everyone, and we want their loved ones to be out of custody as well. But I think that under the circumstance, in fact, we, we got a list of all the misdemeanors. Um, um, property crimes, and we had to go through the list to make sure, are there people that we can release from custody pending their trial that are not going to pose a danger to the community or be a flight risk? And, and so we did those things to keep people out of custody as much as we could. Uh, Mr. McGee, so I don't know if you've heard from your community. I've talked to people in the community, family members of those who are incarcerated, and their perspective and how difficult it is for them they can't get in to see their family members that are in custody. Uh, if they get phone calls, jail calls are really expensive. Families have to pay like $3 for every call plus so much a minute uh, on their family budgets. And it, is, uh, it, it must be really difficult, not only for those in custody, but their families. Have you heard that from the community? Uh, actually, yes, we have. Um, a lot of the uh, community members that are uh, in need of this action, they work directly with our legal redress committee. And uh, our legal redress committee has pointed out on numerous occasions that uh, the only ones that they get to actually speak to are the family members. And not, they may have an individual, <clears throat> excuse me, a family member that is incarcerated who's communicating with their family members when they come when they speak to them and then they have to subsequently relay everything to us, like to a second person. So it's hard to communicate back with the individual who has the need and we directly work with the, with the family members, uh, even though the complainant might be incarcerated. So it does get difficult at times, but we try to keep those lines of communication open so we can find out as much as we possibly can and see how we can assist uh, those that are, are incarcerated and those family members that are in need also. So Rex, um, we have the bench here, Judge Washington, and what would you say, not just to Judge Washington, but to all the judges in Alaska, how to help the communities um, and those incarcerated especially, but just general uh, you know, access to justice, what could you suggest to the court system? Well, I could play the role of Moses and say, let my people go. <laughs> but anyway, you know, um, I think Judge Washington's articulated, you know, and let me say this, Judge Washington and I are good friends. So 
I don't practice in her courtroom. So I can say this about Judge Washington. She's one of the finest judges I know to be on the bench. I wish I could practice in her courtroom, but we're good friends, so we don't do that. But nevertheless, you know, there are a number of, of judges on the bench that aren't as enlightened as Judge Washington is. And I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. So there are people, since, I don't, since I'm not calling any names, I guess I could still practice in court next week. Oh, I'm on a vacation next week. So anyway, but the fact of the matter is, is, is that uh, notwithstanding the best efforts to get people out, there's still people who can't get out. Um, some of you probably in this room know some of the people that can't get out. And they've got the exposure. The people have, some people have died of COVID in the jail. Some have gotten very, very sick. And one thing about the jail, you don't just get to run out to a doctor or to an emergency room or to a hospital. You got to sit there and suffer for a while until they feel like you're beyond their means. Then they make some arrangements to get you to the hospital. So, the COVID pandemic has substantially affected the rights of people. And Judge Washington mentioned speedy trial rights. Well, the speedy trial rule, which is Rule 45, well known to, to most people who are involved in the criminal justice system in state court, has been suspended. The speedy trial rule, basically in federal court, has been suspended by an act of Congress. And uh, so that means that people are not getting these speedy trial rights right now. And because the pandemic has outweighed, as the judges make the findings, the interests of the defendant and the community in a speedy trial right now. When it comes down to criminal justice, COVID-19 rules, period. Just so you know, COVID-19 it overrules the most powerful judges right now. And that's just the way it is. Judge Washington, let me give you an opportunity to speak to the public because I know so many people in the community, they don't get to be, talk to you in your courtroom, but they have family members that are suffering through this pandemic. Is there anything you can say to the public, some kind of encouragement uh, that you can help everybody? Let me let me say this, but let me intercept one thing for a minute, because I can say this on behalf of Judge Washington. She's very limited in what she can say and do here today, okay, because um, judges are governed by bodies just like lawyers are, and uh, what they can do, what they can say, a lot of their personal opinions cannot be voiced, even in a public forum. So with that, Judge Washington... Well, I, I got to protect my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly wish that there was someone here from the Department of Corrections because I know that they're doing some things too in order to minimize the risk to um, inmates while they're in custody waiting on, um, waiting on their trials. And also um, even the state of Alaska in, in what they're doing to, in making charging decisions um, and um, the Public Defender Agency. I think that we've all come together to try to figure out what can we do best. Um, we are talking mostly about criminal justice, but 
the court's been involved in working with other agencies to make sure people understand the Federal CARES Act, um, trying to prevent people from being unreasonably um, evicted from their homes. We've been trying to facilitate more knowledge of what they can do and affidavits they can file in order to stay in their homes, as well as for landlords to get some protections as well. And so we do what we can. Um, I, I like to explain to people that there are three branches of government, and the judiciary is a separate branch of government. So it's very difficult um, for us to talk about what they're supposed to do, only what we can do and what's within our jurisdiction to do. And so what I want the public to know is that the court system is still open to the public. Um, we are still um, trying to do as many hearings as we can, and we do. Um, all of the people that are arrested, they have to come before a judicial officer um, right away for their arraignments. Those things have not slowed down at all. Um, we are making um, everything available to inmates by phone. They can do representation hearings by phone. Um, we've even had some evidentiary hearings um, in criminal cases by phone. Um, the reason why we're not having more hearings is because the defendant has a right to have a jury selected of their peers. And so I think the defense is, uh, has decided not to do any criminal bench trials. You can do criminal bench trials, but of course the, um, the, uh, those agencies don't believe that that's in their client's best interest. And so the court is available. And we realize that we're going to have a backlog when things do open up. And so judges are watching their vacation schedules. Um, we expect that we'll be doing two and three and four files, uh, trials a week. And so we're getting ready for things to open back up. But what we hope people are doing, if you know someone that's um, on pretrial release, one of the things that's very difficult for us is when we get people out of custody and they violate their conditions, there's not very much we can do because this is the dilemma we have. I tell you, don't do some things and I'll let you out of jail. And then you do those things, you get arrested again and you get charged with another crime. It's almost like it might be better for you to just stay in custody because a lot of defendants have six more crimes related to violating conditions of release while they're waiting on their trials. And so, um, so when I went, so if you know anyone, I think the public should know that the court system is aware that it's very difficult for people to get out of custody. Um, we recognize that some of the release conditions for like um, pretrial release and have to be on house arrest, some people are homeless. And they don't have the ability to be on house arrest. And some people don't have the ability to have an ankle monitor that requires you to be somewhere where you can have Wi-Fi and telephone. And so we're recognizing that. We're releasing people on their own. I say OR, it means on your own recognizance. We release people all the time with the promise to come to court. And sometimes when I have a hearing and people are not there, I'll have my staff try to track them down by phone so I don't have to issue a bench warrant for them because they're, they're not appearing. So I think judges are recognizing that it's a very difficult time, but still, um, the state of Alaska is still charging people. The defense agency is being appointed to represent them, and so the court can only do what comes before us. And so we're trying to keep people out of custody as much as possible, but we are absolutely ready to begin jury trials as soon as they are ready. Uh, and we are hoping that counsel is getting ready for those trials because what happens is, is that you, you can blame it now on COVID, but when that is, when we're ready to go, because we had a window of opportunity before we start locking down again, and we started doing trials and no one was ready. Are you ready, Rex? <laughs> and so even when we had that what? window, but when we could do jury trials, <laughs> lawyers were not ready because they're in lockdown as well. 
Yeah. And so I'm just saying, Mr. Butler, as yes. soon as <laughs> jury trials are ready, will you be ready? I'll have something ready, Your Honor. <laughs> but Judge Washington, I want to say you your message is what I wanted to hear. You care. That's that's she the does. important message to the community. You care about mm -hmm. this. And we're just about out of time. I want to thank you guys. I've learned so much from what you've had to say about these times. But and I would like to make a pitch for the Justice Committee of the Alaska Black Caucus. We are working on some of these issues. We can always use help. Uh, one of the programs we're working on is see if we can get into the jails with some of the, like the medical people we saw this morning. If we could get that word into people who are incarcerated about vaccination um, and their, and how important that is while they're in and when they get out and what they can do for their own health and the health of their family. That is one program we're working on. I'm working with Cal Williams on that and Dr. Williams. Um, and the other program we're um, working on is um, we're trying to work with the uh, Northern Justice Project is got a lawsuit, I hope it's not in front of Jed Washington, but a lawsuit against DOC of the expense of these family calls. And we like to assist them with that. So if anybody has suffered the financial burden of having somebody incarcerated and um, and how much that costs the family for each call, and since they can't see their their family members in custody, uh, they have to pay for all these calls. The last policy program we're working on is reviewing now body cam cameras for APD has been voted on with the public in the last election. Now they're they're being implemented soon, and Good. APD is working on policy of how that will work and when the public may have access to body cam footage. And so if anybody would have information, thoughts on that, the policy is being developed right now. And again, our Justice Committee would like to be involved. We need information is power. And if you have information or thoughts about any of these things that we discussed today, we want to hear about them because that's what we're working on with the ABC Justice Committee. So thank you for your, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I had one last comment since you brought up the body cameras. Uh, this is an issue that's of concern also with the NAACP, but with another hat that I wear as being a member of the board of directors for the ACLU, that's one of our concerns also, and we're looking into that also. Yeah, and I did want to say that um, you might be aware that the Family Law Help Center that we've had in Alaska, um, that's um, um, hosted by the court system, it's now the Access to Justice Center, and so we have so many more available resources for families that are unable to um, hire lawyers or can afford to um, um, get the representation that they need. So that's a very valuable resource that the court system is, has rolled out. Okay, I think we're out of time. So let's give these folks a hand. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You just heard speakers from the Betty Davis African American Summit on COVID-19 from October 2021. If you missed part of this show or would like to hear more like it, you can find them on the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. 
The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.